The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Lawfare Archive. Hello, this is Lawfare intern Christiana Wayne with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for July 5th, 2021. This week at the centennial celebration of the Chinese Communist Party, President Xi Jinping declared the unstoppable rise of his country, threatening, quote, the Chinese people will never allow foreign forces to bully, oppress, or enslave us. Whoever nurses delusions of doing that will crack their heads and spill blood on the Great Wall of Steel built from the flesh and blood of 1.4 billion Chinese people. For today's episode from the archives, I chose to go back to December 2019 for a discussion of another instance of gamesmanship between China and the United States. Here, Shane Harris and former Deputy Director of the CIA, John McLaughlin, talked to David Priest about Chinese counterintelligence and its impact on the U.S.-China relationship. He is acknowledging that he conspired. He pled guilty to one count of conspiring to spy for China. The money, how it got there, who put it there, did he really give information to the Chinese, is all information that falls into these gaps that run throughout the Jerry Lee story. Things that he will acknowledge in court, the things that he has never been forced to acknowledge, and then potentially, you know, the real gaps in understanding that I think the agency and the FBI might have about what he actually did, and could they genuinely prove uh, that this took place. I mean, I've talked to people who will tell you that there is a lot of smoke around this person, and they'll acknowledge that, uh, and then people who are absolutely convinced that he gave this information to the Chinese, but uh, that is ultimately not what he pleaded guilty to. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 14th, 2019. Recently, former CIA officer Jerry Lee was arrested and sentenced for his role in misusing classified information. At the same time, reporting indicates that CIA officers in China have been arrested or turned by Chinese authorities. What's the connection between these two, and what does it mean for Chinese counterintelligence work overall? Recently, we spoke with John McLaughlin, practitioner-in-residence at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and former acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency, as well as Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post, whose reporting covered much of the Jerry Lee case. We talked about, of course, the Jerry Lee case, counterintelligence in China, and the impact on the U.S.-China relationship. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 485, Countering Chinese Espionage. 
Shane, start us off here. Tell us a little bit about what we know and what we don't know, both about the Jerry Lee case and exactly what he was doing that prompted his arrest and eventually his sentencing. Probably is best to start at the beginning of what we know. Jerry Lee is 55 years old. He's a naturalized U.S. citizen from Hong Kong and an Army veteran, and he was a CIA case officer from 1994 to 2007. Uh, He left the agency, uh, and in 2010, he started a company with a former Hong Kong detective who has ties to Chinese intelligence. Now, this, if this sounds like the beginning of sort of like a spy caper or a spy movie, it sort of is. It has a lot of atmospherics to it. Those are the background pieces that we know. And then what I'll lay out here is some of the factual elements as well. There is a dinner that he has in 2010 uh, in China in which Li is approached by two Chinese operatives who say that they know about his work for the agency in China and offer to take care of him for life, according to uh, information from prosecutors, in exchange for national defense information, i.e. secrets, classified information. We can think about it that way. Uh, and offer to pay him, uh, starting with about $100,000. Lee actually reported this approach to a former colleague from the CIA, but not the offer of payment for information. Mm. So initially here we see some aspects of Lee kind of hiding what was going on. For the next few years, and it's important to note that Lee has pleaded guilty to this information, uh, Lee compiled secret information requested by Chinese operatives, including locations that CIA officers with certain expertise and experience were were working at. And let me uh, nail that down. He's pleaded guilty to keeping this information when he no longer had a need to and of communicating with Chinese operatives about it. Right, but not to sharing the information with them. Key, key point. <laughs> right. So keep to keep remember. So uh, in early 2012, there is this incident in which a former colleague of his tries to get him to reapply to the CIA, which is part of a ruse that's designed to bring Lee back to the United States for questioning. Now, why had that occurred? Why was the CIA becoming concerned that there might be something about Jerry Lee they wanted to investigate? Uh, What we know from officials and from facts in the record is that around 2010 into 2011, the CIA became very concerned uh, that assets in China were essentially disappearing. There were some that we know were being arrested. There are some that are believed to have been killed. Uh, The U.S. government was tipped off to this. It's been reported by an FBI informant who came forward and said, "Um, I don't understand why people that I've been working with or know to be engaged in this kind of work are suddenly disappeared. And so it becomes – it starts to dawn on people in the intelligence community that there could be some kind of compromise. Possibly there is a mole that is revealing where the agency's assets are in China. During this time that Li is lured back to the United States under the false pretenses of possibly coming back to the agency – FBI agents search his hotel room and they find a notebook that included intelligence from CIA assets as well as their true names uh, and including locations and other identifying information. When wasn't there a report and sorry, I don't remember if this was in your reporting on this story, but a report that in that information was also drawings or something about a 
covert U.S. location within China? Right. There was a drawing that he was supposed to, uh, is alleged to have made of a, of a CIA facility. Um, uh, now, what he also claims is that all of this information in the notebook, also he never shared it. And I believe the drawing actually he claims to have torn up mm-hmm. uh, and never given to these people who were allegedly, uh, well, who he's admitted were requesting information from him. So if they have requested that information, and, and I, I'm asking you to speculate in some cases mm-hmm. here, but the facts as much as we know them, he has this information that he's collected, which obviously would be of high value to the Chinese security services. He says he did not pass it to the Chinese, even though they were asking for something like this. And then he somehow has hundreds of thousands of dollars that magically appear. How does he explain this away or does he? He has many hundreds of thousands, about apparently $840,000 that appear in his bank accounts. And people who I've spoken to who are knowledgeable about this case will do a follow the money line at about this point, right? It has never been entirely clear because he's not admitting, remember, to mm-hmm. having exchanged anything with the Chinese, how this money ends up in the bank account. Um, but it is there. He is acknowledging that he conspired. He pled guilty to one count of conspiring to spy for China. The money, how it got there, who put it there, did he really give information to the Chinese is all information that falls into these gaps that run throughout the Jerry Lee story, things that he will acknowledge in court, the things that he has never been forced to acknowledge, and then potentially you know, the real gaps in understanding that I think the agency and the FBI might have about what he actually did and could they genuinely prove uh, that this mm-hmm. took place. I mean, I've talked to people who will tell you that there is a lot of smoke around this person and they'll mm-hmm. acknowledge that uh, and then people who are absolutely convinced that he gave this information to the Chinese, but uh, that is ultimately not what he pleaded guilty to. So we know that he was sentenced to, I believe, 19 years in prison. But the charge was not actual espionage charge. It yeah. was a charge of what? Cons- classified information. Conspiring, conspiracy. right. And it's important to remember, conspiring to commit espionage. So the, the, yeah. the gathering of this information, the writing down mm-hmm. of it, acknowledging that there were people in China who had asked him to compile this information, but never the giving over of it. Okay. And what's also interesting is in the, in the plea – The prosecutors refer to secret information, right? So we're not talking about even top secret information, which is interesting uh, that there is not, it seems, even a kind of – uh, a sense that the information was was hugely damaging. Now, that's important as well, or that it was you know very highly classified. That's important as well because this gets to the question of what was the damage that people in the intelligence community believe Jerry Lee did. Mm-hmm. There are people who believe that he is, if not solely, possibly one of maybe one or two individuals who is responsible for that network in China getting rolled up uh, and, and being taken apart. It's been reported that as many as 20 CIA assets in China were ultimately uh, removed, either people who were turned or who were killed. John can tell you this better than I can, but that number would be devastating to any intelligence organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that this is something that the people who believe that Jerry Lee ultimately is responsible for this, in fact, I spoke to somebody just about this in the past couple of days, think that 19 years was not enough. And that ultimately the guilty plea in this case may have been the best that the government could do, but that more facts about this case uh, have not been told and that he deserved more time than he got. Let's come back to that uh, later in in terms of what the implication of his sentencing is. But John, I want to go to a larger point here. Shane teed this up as it is a spy case. It is a case of somebody who was caught with classified information and then had this mysterious exchange of money. 
But what makes it really interesting is the nexus of that with what was going on with the Chinese spy operations overall. So I'm going to put you in a hypothetical position. You are back in the acting director's chair or in the deputy director's chair at CIA, and you are receiving word from your operations folks that the assets aren't showing up to meetings, that assets perhaps in China or elsewhere reporting on a certain topic are not showing up and we don't know where they are. And in fact, maybe some reports are coming in that they have been flipped or in fact that some are dead. What goes through your mind when that happens in that leadership position and in talking to your operations folks about what to do? Well, you ask yourself a couple of questions. The first one is, what are the possible causes of these losses that we're seeing? And two spring immediately to mind. In classic terms, the most important and most frequent is they have a, what we call a penetration of your service. They have a spy within your service, a mole, if you will. Somebody who has access to those identities and is giving them over. Someone who has access to those identities and is giving them over. Okay. Uh, the second possibility that occurs is maybe they don't. Maybe they have access to our communications. Maybe they have compromised our communications with agents, which are covert and carefully protected. But this is a, a world where technology is moving rapidly and where you can't be sure that anything is secure unless you've triple-checked it. Hmm. So those would be your first two thoughts. Okay. And then you'd go from there to say, how can we get underneath this? So you might take the first one, we have a mole, that possibility. We have a penetration. And then you would ask yourself, who in our service knows the identities of these assets mm -hmm. and where do they work? And who knows them who may not be working in those jobs now but may have worked in those jobs at one point? Mm -hmm. So you probably then have a fairly small population you're looking at because right. something like the identities of agents is not widely shared. Mm -hmm. You don't even share it with other senior officials in the CIA who may have access to all kinds of classified information, but you compartment this. That means you put it in a box. You put it in a circle of people who are cleared for it. So you would have a very small population to look at. And you'd start working through that population uh, carefully, uh, looking at things like travel records. Uh, there is an annual requirement to declare your finances in considerable detail. You'd look at people's finances and see if they are uh, within the range that you would expect. And if memory serves, that requirement for financial information for current employees and contractors is an outgrowth of the Alder James case. It is, because in the Alder James case, someone who was arrested for spying for the Russians in the, uh, the 1990s gave himself away by lavish spending on a house. I think he spent something like $500,000 in cash on a house uh, by a sudden upgrade in his dress even. Yeah, started uh, wearing very nice suits. Uh, all of a sudden Someone was, with a record of not wearing uh, yeah, nice clothes at all. A person who heretofore yeah. had been uh, kind of, uh, if not slovenly, <laughs> at least careless in his dress, suddenly sure. was uh, elegantly tailored mm -hmm. and driving a Jaguar and moving into a, an expensive house for which he paid cash. And that was a giveaway. And it's also one of the rules of counterintelligence uh, that you look for that. And it's a rule of recruiting agents that you don't give them a lot of money that they mm -hmm. can throw around mm -hmm. 
Uh, you may put that in escrow for them later. But in, in, yeah. for whatever reason, the Russians made the mistake and he made the mistake. So you'd look at that and then you would um, start to narrow down that population as best you could. And if you came up with nothing, uh, then you'd start to look at um, technology and see if there had been yeah. some compromises of communication. And hopefully you come up with something. Your best avenue here and this is why this whole enterprise, counterintelligence, it's why it's called the wilderness of mirrors. Mm -hmm. Your best way of detecting this is to have a penetration of the other service. So you're each trying to penetrate each other for roughly the same purposes. So if you have a mole in their service, chances are that will give you the best clue as to how they're identifying your agents. Sure, especially if they're well-placed enough on that topic to come to you and say, we are recruiting someone within your service, and I want you to know. Exactly. Right. And it's usually access to their records or mm. such that will give you a clue as to how uh, you can um, find that person. And I could give you an example of that. Please. But that, that's how you would think about it. Yeah. What's, what's an example to just to put some uh, to meat on the bones well, here? Well, uh, let's take another case, and it illustrates two things, I think, that relate to this case. Just as a general proposition, the bar is very high for making arrests and prosecution in counterintelligence with spies. Mm -hmm. You literally have to catch them in the act. So that's the problem in this case. Lee claims that he never passed this information. If you don't have either photographic evidence or physical evidence or technical evidence of him actually passing this information, mm -hmm. you're not going to get over that bar. And it, so appears, it appears that prosecutors were looking for that. That is the years between when they first interviewed him and his arrest ultimately sure sounds to me like they were looking for that actual transaction to occur in a place where they could see it or detect it. But it also appears that they didn't get it or else it would have somehow come up in the charges against him. That's what I would infer. And to, to go to the point I think you were referring to in the example, let's take the case of Robert Hansen. Mm -hmm. the FBI spy who was arrested, I think, in 2003 or four thereabouts. He was arrested and is now serving life in jail for a variety of reasons. Uh, long story there. In fact, for a long time, we thought it was someone else. That also apparently was true of the Lee case from what I've read of, of Shane's reporting. But eventually, Hansen was caught in the act. He was caught placing a, a bag, a black trash bag filled with classified information under a bridge in a park in Fairfax because he was under FBI surveillance. The FBI had purchased a house across the street from his clandestinely, had him under all kinds of monitoring, including monitoring his car and so forth. And eventually they caught him going to do what we call a dead drop, that is placing a drop for the Russians to pick up. So game, set, match. Right. Done. And so that was a very a different kind of case. Uh, that was a very complex case, but one of the breaks came because the FBI was able through means that I either can't talk about or don't clearly remember, but have to be careful on. The FBI eventually got their hands on a file, a KGB file that had been brought out by, I think, a Russian businessman who made it available to them under some basis. And in that file, they found things like mm -hmm. an audio recording that eventually was identified as Hansen's voice. And I think they found also some 
fingerprints on a fragment of a black plastic bag. All, so this all, is good spy story stuff. Right. And all stuff that it appears, Shane, we, we don't have in this case because – well, there are really two options. One is we don't have that in this case and therefore prosecutors could not use it or prosecutors had it. But the nature of the information was such that they did not want to reveal it in court and they settled for a lesser charge. What does your experience tell you was more likely in this case? Well, and then the latter is often called gray mail, if I have that right. I mean, the idea that, you know, a, a defendant also knows that he has the opportunity to bring forth information or compel evidence and maybe the prosecution ends up revealing more than it would like to in, in the course of, 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 the, uh, of the trial. My sense from the reporting is that there is more, I think, of the former going on here. Uh, you know, it, it, there was no uh, lack of desire on the part of both people in the CIA and in the Justice Department to prosecute Jerry Lee to the fullest extent that that, that they could. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, there are people who I know who believe in their bones that he is responsible for the decimation of the CIA's networks in China and believe that he has blood on his hands. I think it's more goes into this category of they didn't have the kind of in the act evidence like John is describing here. And ultimately, you know, Jerry Lee perhaps uh, now his lawyers, it's clear to say, you know, we should say insist he never gave any information over and that's why there is no evidence of it. But even in the times that they were able to lure him back to the United States, go through his notebooks. Um, there was even uh, my colleague David Ignatius has reported about how they even got onto this case in the first place, which is when the Chinese approached another former CIA operative and let slip that they were working with Jerry Lee. Even despite all of that, I don't think that there was enough to prove an ironclad case. And there may well have been other instances too where they just didn't want to go there on some of these things. But I think, you know, given the uh, severity of the sentence, given the um, the, the rigor of the investigation, the years it took to do this, I think that uh, they desperately wanted to put him away for as long as possible. And, and you've talked about this in terms of the investigation and tracking him and following him. John, you brought up the word counterintelligence. This is no longer just a CIA thing at this point. Where in this process does the FBI counterintelligence army come in and start working with the agency in terms of identifying what could be causing some kind of a problem with an asset base? Well, the primary responsibility for counterintelligence on a case like this is with the uh, FBI. Mm -hmm. And the CIA comes into it at the point at which there is a foreign connection. The FBI and the CIA will work together and consult. That, in my own experience, was my personal experience on, on counterintelligence, that uh, we would come in at the point at which it touched a foreign asset or a foreign country. And on most cases involving espionage of this sort, FBI and CIA are together, but FBI is in the... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Lead. Mm-hmm. Without referring to any cases uh, that you did work on when you were leading CIA, but talking generally, how is that relationship when it comes to counterintelligence? Because it inherently affects core equities of both yeah. the Bureau and the agency. Walk through a little bit about how each side, if you will, sees that and how they work together or in some cases don't. Well, a couple of things. First, this is the most difficult kind of intelligence work. Uh, it's uh, covert. It's sensitive. Uh, it involves uh, people's privacy. Mm-hmm. You have to stay very carefully within all of the laws. So it's very difficult work. And just given the nature of it, uh, all intelligence services protect this work assiduously. So what that means for the FBI-CIA relationship is that it's it's tight and small, meaning that uh, this is an area where CIA and FBI work very closely together, as best I can tell and recall, with very little friction there is, uh, and, and it's usually just a small circle of people, the cases that I worked on would have involved, uh, certainly at the senior level, no more than a handful of people. I'm talking, you know, six or seven people in a conference room. There are a lot of people who are collecting information and feeding it up, but it's not something that you have big interagency meetings on mm-hmm. because um, it's the sort of thing that will leak very quickly any leaks will undermine the case. It usually takes a long time to get to a conclusion on a case like this. There is also a tension that can develop over whether you want to arrest and prosecute or whether you want to let this run on for a while to see where is it going to go and what more can we learn and is this person the tip of an iceberg of a larger network? And the two agencies may talk back and forth about that. There's more of perhaps more of a prosecutorial impulse in the FBI and more of a let's let this run a little longer in the CIA. But I wouldn't even make that an iron rule. I mean, it, it, it really the two agencies are of – this is one area where they have to work and have worked very closely together. In the case of Hansen, for example, there was an interesting twist on all of this in that the, the, the pattern of clues – appeared to point first to a CIA officer, and yet it was an FBI officer, and we were both working the case. And it was only at a certain point that the information took a turn that revealed the FBI officer as the as the spy. But I don't recall any tension about that. Mm-hmm. I just remember that it was uh, difficult. So in this case, Shane, when we're talking about Jerry Lee, it may in fact be the case, as his attorney has said, that No, he did not give them any information and basically disavowing any connection between Jerry Lee and the issues with the asset base in China. If so, that points to another option. One of them John mentioned uh, earlier, which is it could be a pure communications issue. That is the Chinese, whether through information from another source in the U.S. government or just by good technical tradecraft, 
broke the communication systems used to communicate with assets. Another one, which is perhaps darker still, is that there is another mole, that there is someone else who has provided this information to China. What are you hearing or what is the speculation of those who are in the know that you've talked to about the investigation into those options now, if at all? Unless If they're not confused about Jerry Lee, then there's no issue at all. But it seems to me there's still some unknowns here that they're exploring. Yeah, and we should we should say too that, I mean, stories of, you know, moles and intelligence services often sort of pervade. I mean, they're kind of mythological in some cases and, uh, and kind of maybe part of the territory of always wondering if you've been penetrated. But there's a strong sense among people I've talked to that something did happen with the covert communication systems that the agency used to communicate with its assets in China, that it was compromised in some way and that that could help explain why these individuals were rounded up with such efficiency. Uh, just to kind of give people a little flavor for this, you know, the CIA, like intelligence organizations for centuries, have looked to technological methods and uh, ways of encrypting and, and encoding communications to communicate secretly with their assets. Um, one way that we know from public reporting that that's happened now is through systems that actually rely on the internet in some degree for communications, which might sound to people as sort of a crazy idea that a secret intelligence agency would be communicating over a public medium, but there are ways to do that uh, in, in highly secured ways that can be hidden uh, from people that you're trying to communicate with. There is some speculation that some element of that system was compromised in a way that it allowed the Chinese services to go and find who the people were who were working for the Americans. Okay, if that happened, how did they know about it? Did Jerry Lee tell them or did someone else, which then kind of leads you down a bit of the road of, of the second mole. There's been some reporting that there might uh, – indications that there was even information that the, that the Chinese seemed to have that we can't be for sure Jerry Lee would have himself known about, which of course raises those questions about another mole. But you know, kind of echoing something that John said, <clears throat> you know, this, these aren't isolated incidents. Intelligence services are constantly trying to penetrate one another's services. And what is so, I think, alarming and ultimately was so devastating for people in the agency about the Jerry Lee case is whether it was Jerry Lee or not, there was some apparently massively successful penetration, it would seem, of the CIA networks uh, in China, which is not to say that we should assume that the CIA has no ability to collect intelligence in China uh, since these reported roundups. But when something like that happens, it's, it's I think, you know, safe to say a, a nightmare scenario for somebody who works in the intelligence community and certainly in counterintel, this is the thing you are really trying to avoid at all costs. Let's relate that back, John, to the overall aggressiveness of the Chinese services. At a news conference after the hearing, law enforcement officials did note that the Chinese have been particularly aggressive in targeting former clearance holders, even on social media, and in fact, maybe using information gleaned from something a lot of us have forgotten about in these busy few years, which is that old Office of Personnel Management hack <laughs> when many government employees' information sets were, in a sense, according to the public announcements, were obtained by the Chinese. How could that information, paired with social media, and then perhaps paired with some information from an insider, how would that all work for the Chinese to do something as massive as take down an asset network? Well, the OPM hack uh, gave them uh, a targeter's goldmine in terms of personal data. This is what you 
typically assign your targeting officers to gather over a long period of time on assets that you might be interested in trying to develop. So that was, uh, to use a Chinese term, a great leap forward for them. Hmm. And I think we just have to accept that as a, as a problem. In, there was an interesting comment made some years ago uh, in a case that uh, actually 60 Minutes documented of a defense employee named Greg Bergerson who was actually spying for a Chinese recruiter who was working through a Taiwanese businessman. And uh, long story, but the point I wanted to make about it was that in the interview with the uh, that 60 Minutes did, they managed to get their hands on a former Chinese intelligence officer who was willing to talk about recruitment strategies. And he talked about some of the things they're seeking and so forth, and some of them are obvious. This was uh, during the uh, Obama presidency. So he said, what we'd really want is, what is Obama planning? What is he thinking? But the interesting thing to me was, when asked how successful they were, he said, I might attempt this with 100 people, and I might fail with 99. But if I succeed with one, that's enough. So the main thing you take from that, coupled with other things we know, is that the Chinese are very aggressive, that second, they devote enormous resources to this, uh, that third, it's not just a sideline for them, it's part of their national security strategy in a way that exceeds our devotion to intelligence, I think. Rem remember that at some level, I think China can be termed uh, a national security state. Obtaining information for them is not just about mapping dangers. It's also about obtaining positive information that can go into their technological base and industrial base. So their requirements are very broad, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the population they can approach is very broad. Right. And often, it may be that they're seeking stuff that we wouldn't regard as super sensitive, compartmented, code word material. It may be something that is sensitive and proprietary, and that an American might not even realize is of the value that they attach to it. So it's really complicated. And, and it's an important thing for them from a national security and a, and, and a developmental perspective. Mm -hmm. So it would seem that part of countering this is not just hardening traditional defenses, using good tradecraft in the field as an intelligence officer, but also a a more general awareness in the public of all of the pieces that could be acquired by, in this case, the Chinese. Well, this is why in the late 90s, in the intelligence world, we created something called the National Counterintelligence Executive. Right. And part of that effort was to remap what we thought were the, uh, the things they were looking for and to understand that they were going beyond classic spy-on-spy -spy stuff and that they were looking for a much broader array of, of uh, treasures. So the first step in successful counterintelligence is to analyze what's the other side want. Hmm? Then the second step is to devise a defense strategy against them getting that, and that may involve everything from security classifications to compartmentation to the kind of routine polygraphs that we do with our employees and so forth. And then the third step is what we call owning the street, meaning you have to be present in a way that allows you to understand what they're actually doing 
in places where you have assets. Sure. One of my former colleagues wrote an article called The Ten Commandments of Counterintelligence, and one of them was own the street. Right. Shane, can you put this into some perspective? We're, we're talking about China here, and we'll probably come back to it. But in the Cold War, and even into the post-Cold War era, most of these big spy case stories were about the Soviet Union and then Russia. We already talked about Alder James. We already talked about Robert Hansen. We skipped dozens of others. Right now, does this case highlight that, in fact, the, the landscape is changing, that it is a, a more varied environment than even we thought 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah, and more varied and also, I mean, a level of aggression and commitment, as John was saying, with, with resources um, by China that I don't think we probably saw from them, you know, 20 years ago, and we certainly don't associate with Cold War espionage. Um, a huge amount of that, obviously, you know, goes to computer hacking and the theft of intellectual property and the kind of attacks on the defense industrial base. I'm also reminded, too, that there's been reporting of Chinese officials here under kind of ostensibly diplomatic status doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, like going to the doors of Chinese nationals who are living in the United States legally and harassing them and threatening them and trying to control them maybe into coming back to China and sharing what they've learned here working in American businesses or in universities. Silicon Valley is deeply concerned about this. University systems are worried about this. I mean, it's leading to all kinds of questions about does there need to be more screening of Chinese students that are studying in laboratories and in technological complexes. It's a kind of pervasiveness and just sort of multi-front and multi-dimensional hoovering up of intelligence and information that we don't really associate with this cat and mouse game of when we think about the Soviets and the Americans and, you know, Moscow rules and kind of the classic stuff of great spy novels that seemed obviously was very high stakes, but very much targeted at understanding the leadership of each country, military technology of each country, uh, the locations of spies. The Chinese are engaged in broad scale information, uh, economic espionage, you know, harassment and targeting campaigns on U.S. soil. And I think that is, you know, a huge challenge for an intelligence service that is more, you know, still, I mean, in, in its counter-intel role, I would think, kind of classically thinking about this in a state-on-state -state mm -hmm. relationship the way they did with the Soviets. John, back when you were at CIA, you sat in on many, many policy meetings having to do with strategic threats to the United States and how to counter them with diplomatic, intelligence, military means. And in the last year, you've written about this, particularly related to China and highlighting the fact that China is rising. China's economy is not something that will be easily stopped if anybody thought it could be. And in fact, you've written that the United States needs to be more strategic about where to operate in that gray area between diplomacy and military action. To the extent that China is ramping up its activity, as this case may highlight, what kinds of things do you think that leaders in the United States government should be having very serious conversations about now in order to operate in that somewhat uncomfortable space between open diplomatic activity and actual armed conflict? Mm, that's tough. Well, you have to start with the fact that the China problem is huge and complicated. The bottom line here is that our relationship with China will be the, I'm certain, the most important bilateral relationship of the next, let's say, 50 years, maybe longer, next century. 
and that it will affect everyone in the world. So when we deal with China, we're not just dealing on our behalf, we're dealing really on the behalf of almost everyone else. And so uh, the first step is always to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, and then to ask yourself, of that menu of things, where can we be effective? And when we talk about them operating in a gray area, you know, that, that means using the full panoply of national security assets to achieve an objective and knowing where you want to end up, let's say, five years from now, and organizing yourself to do that. Well, we have a presidential election every four years. So, I mean, the first thing we need to do, I think, strategically to operate effectively with China is to think well ahead strategically. A friend of mine once asked the Chinese museum director about an object, and the Chinese museum director said, oh, that's 1,500 years old. That was a very good millennium for us. <laughs> and the next millennium is going to be even better. Well, you know, no American would ever even think that way. So we have to realize they have a very long-range strategy, and we need to have one too. And operating in a gray area doesn't mean just doing more intelligence or more things that involve deception. It means thinking beyond the raw attributes of power that we normally use, military, sanctions, traditional diplomacy. And it means engagement at a deep level. Uh, and by engagement, I mean talking to people, constantly building relationships, you never want to get into that part of the gray area that involves dissembling and just lying. Mm. That's what we see in the case of the Russians often with places like Crimea and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's so counter to our values. There's the struggle right there, right. that our values keep us out of the gray area. Other countries don't have quite those values. So we, this is a struggle for us. One tactical option whenever one of these spy cases comes up, one tactical option is always to retaliate. And this is a case where the Russians catch an American doing something in their country, and then let's say they boot out some diplomats. And so there's an equal and opposite reaction of us booting out their diplomats. In this case, Shane, have you seen anything in terms of any kind of a punch back being talked about from intelligence sources because of what the Chinese clearly did in this case of at least seeking this information from Jerry Lee even if, as his attorneys say, he didn't hand it over. Clearly, the Chinese were going after some very sensitive information. Have you seen any sign that this is heating up an actual spy versus spy war where there will be these retaliatory measures? Well, I, I haven't seen in my own reporting anything that I would you know, say is analogous to when the administration recently kicked out about 60 mm -hmm. suspected Russian intelligence operatives following uh, the poisoning, the Skripal poisoning in England doesn't mean it's not happening, I should emphasize. What I tend to hear more from intelligence officials is how do they work with corporations in particular, mm. technology companies, defense contractors to a lesser extent, but really these places where there's vulnerable information of huge economic value that the Chinese want uh, and how do we protect that from getting out and how do you secure universities? How do you secure technology companies in Silicon Valley? You know, I would imagine there's probably a lot of thought being given to the counter spy aspect, you know, no doubt. And we do indict people in this country uh, from China for, for espionage. But that seems to me to reflect this idea that there has to be 
even more attention paid to kind of the economic espionage and the industrial espionage that the Chinese are doing. And the FBI has made a huge public information push on this. They even make little mini-movies about famous cases of trade secrets being stolen to try and educate people. I mean, that I think reflects the degree to which the Chinese intelligence threat is not strictly directed at government targets. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of a whole-of-American-life approach. To the point where there are discussions about apps being used that have a Chinese connection. Are they oh, collecting sure. all kinds of personal information about average U.S. citizens? Well, there, there's a place actually where I think you could point to a very aggressive pushback from the United States when this this group CFIUS, which is allowed to come in and, and review even well after the fact, a transaction in which a foreign entity buys a share of an American corporation. They've actually come in uh, in certain cases where apps have been bought by Chinese companies or taken a big share of them and said to the app developer, you have to sell that share off because this now proposes, poses a uh, security risk because these apps give off tons of data. Going back to our OPM yeah. example, we could be just giving over the Chinese information on location and people's private information. So mm -hmm. there the government has become much more aggressive. Right. You know, I just want to go back to your gray area question because I, I think sure. I struggled with commenting on that. And I think the reason is when you look at the Russian problem, we're operating off of 70 years or more of reflex you know, we had a global battle with them ideologically and in, in, in the intelligence world. And to some degree, we haven't gotten past that yet. So they spy on us. We spy on them. We kick each other out. Uh, we move on to the next we day. We have an established pattern yeah. of behavior yeah. there. With the Chinese, we don't have that. We don't have that background, that record. And also, when the Chinese talk about gray area, what they're really talking about is using all of the tools of national power in an orchestrated way to achieve a strategic objective over a long period of time. We want to combat that. We have to do the same thing. And the other thing is we still don't know. If you were to look out 50 years from now, this is also something I've written about, we still don't know whether China will be, at the end of 50 years, an enemy, a competitor, possibly a partner. All of those things are possible depending on how we want to bend history, which we have the capacity to do. We are still, I think, overall the most powerful country in the world, perhaps not to the exclusive degree we once were, but still, all things considered, you know, people aren't looking to be China's ally. They are still looking to be ours. American culture is still the most pervasive uh, soft power in the world. And uh, add that to our natural resources and so forth. We have a lot to work with. And we could have a strategy of moving our relationship with China to a less hostile level. But that would be counter, I think, to the way most people are thinking about it right at the moment. It's something we need to step back and really reconsider. Where do we want to be with them? This is strategy. Where do you want to be with them in 25 years? How would you define that? And then how do you get there and what steps have to be taken? And that does, if not require, that does benefit from a strategic, thoughtful, cumulative policy planning process, yep. which obviously we have some questions about given the style of this administration's yep. foreign policy decision making. Uh, let me close with both of you, your, your take on this. Let us posit that Jerry Lee is not alone in this, that the Chinese have been working to get others 
to give such information up. John, under the assumption that you do not have uh, current intelligence access to those very sensitive CI files that you talked about earlier, do you think it is more likely or less likely than not that the Chinese have another penetration in the United States intelligence community right now? With the stipulation that I know nothing about this, <laughs> uh, if I had to bet, if my life depended on it, I would bet yes. Shane, despite the fact that I respect your reporting, I hope that you do not have current classified information on this topic. <laughs> the same question. Do you think it's more likely uh, or less likely than not that the Chinese do have another penetration in the United States intelligence community as we speak? Uh, more likely, uh, given history and, and the, the relentlessness of their services. But I would also think potentially strongly likely that we don't know or that the U.S. intelligence community does not know and is taking as many steps possible right now to to minimize those points of access and to mitigate what damage might already be being done. I mean, you can reach a point of paralysis in any intelligence service if behind every corner you see a mole or a double agent. But just given how good the Chinese have been at this and the number of people that they're willing to throw at it, it seems like it would be foolish to assume that they haven't uh, certainly had that they've tried. And you should probably bet that they've succeeded to some degree, maybe not as much as Jerry Lee or whoever was responsible for the roll-up in China. But uh, you know, even a fraction of that kind of damage is significant. One final thought uh, for me would be uh, referring back to that article I mentioned on the Ten Commandments of Counterintelligence. One of them is don't work on this too long. It can drive you crazy. <laughs> you can become paranoid. As James Angleton's history pointed uh, out. Apparently in, so, yes. In CIA lore. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, finally, do you think that, uh, John, you first, do you think that we will somehow in some way discover whether in fact – Jerry Lee was responsible for some of these reported losses in China? That's uh, really a hard question. I would, of course, again, have to say I don't know. I don't have the data. If I had a lot of data, I might give you a really a percentage answer. Yeah. But I, I would say uh, the likelihood of that is low yeah. because he's going to go to jail apparently mm -hmm. uh, for some period of time. And uh, he apparently has given up everything he's going to give up. And sometimes these cases just remain mysteries. Mm -hmm. um, I can give you a case from the past, uh, the Felix Block case. And this, uh, not many people would remember this from the 1980s, but if you did a Google search, you would find an enormous amount of material on it. This was a State Department employee who was suspected of espionage with the Russians, was photographed sitting with uh, an apparent KGB officer in Vienna, exchanging little black bags. That's all the evidence that was available. And he was not jailed or prosecuted, although he was hounded by the media for weeks. He said that all he gave him was a stamp collection. And to this day... There was no way to disprove that. No one knows. Yeah. Yeah. He did lose his position in the State Department. Shane, short of a mole in the Chinese service that gives us information on this, do you think this will remain a mystery or is there another avenue by which we may learn more about what the ultimate damage from Jerry Lee was? You know, somebody who knows this case pretty well recently said to me in a way that I thought was trying to inspire me to start looking deeper into it, you know, there's more to know about this case. 
And I thought, you know, which is sort of like catnip to a reporter until you stop and think, you know, don't do this for too long, right? To John's point, because you could drive yourself crazy. Obviously, this case has been gone after very thoroughly. Uh, he, Jerry Lee has said all he uh, has to say. Uh, I'm not personally inclined much as a reporter to spend a lot more of my time trying to solve the mystery. But if he, in fact, is responsible for this penetration or bears some significant measure of it somewhere, someplace, there's somebody who knows the answer to that. Uh, and maybe one day in an archive or an interview or when the world is a different place, uh, we'll find the answer to that. I keep coming back to these people who as I said, believe it to their core that he's responsible for more than people know. But if they knew what that was, they probably would have told the FBI and maybe his sentence would be different. For now, it will remain one of those known unknowns. John, Shane, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, David. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Shane Harris and John McLaughlin for coming on the show. Please do remember to share our podcast and rate it and tweet about it. Please also remember, while you still have time, to go to the Lawfare store to do some holiday shopping. We have all kinds of merch, from shirts to hats to challenge coins to notebooks to pens to socks to lanyards. Anything that you can think of is probably at the Lawfare store. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Jacob Schultz provided our audio engineering. Sophia Yan, as always, performed our music.